Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. New York, 1920. Only a few months after Prohibition had gone into effect, the city was awash in illegal booze. Speakeasies all across Manhattan offered the thirsty a place to drink and let off some steam. All you needed to know was a secret password. The guard at the door opened the peephole to a short, round man in a suit by the name of Izzy Einstein. When he asked Izzy what he wanted, Izzy responded, a drink. Once he was inside, Izzy saw a sea of men and women drinking and dancing. He knew he was in the right place, so he made his way to the bar and sat down. The bartender asked Izzy what he was having. Izzy responded, would you like to sell a pint of whiskey to a deserving prohibition agent? The bartender looked at Izzy for a second before bursting into laughter. He pulled out a bottle and poured Izzy a shot. Whiskey in hand, Izzy turned back to the bartender, told him he was under arrest for violating the Volstead Act, and slapped a pair of handcuffs on him. The bartender had just sold alcohol to one of the most successful Prohibition agents of the early 1920s. During Prohibition, Izzy Einstein, and hundreds like him, scoured American cities to prosecute the illegal selling and distribution of alcohol. After arresting the bartender, Izzy took a sniff of the glass in front of him and turned his nose up in disgust. He was smelling moonshine. One gulp and his belly would be full of poison. And if the moonshine was made using denatured industrial alcohol, it meant only one thing. The government was the supplier. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. Neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong, sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. 
This is our first episode on Prohibition, the 13-year period between 1920 and 1933 when it was illegal to make, sell, or transport alcohol in the United States. For nearly a century, the temperance movement had tried to get alcohol banned. It finally culminated in the passing of the 18th Amendment in 1919. In order to enforce the law, the government created a new agency in 1920, the Bureau of Prohibition. These prohibition agents, or prohees, were tasked to take down those violating the Volstead Act. They performed raids on home distilleries and arrested thousands. Once in cuffs, violators had to square off against the Department of Justice. But in the decade that followed, men and women across the country quickly realized that prohibition was a joke. The reality was only a small fraction of the people wanted prohibition. The average American never wanted to put down their bottle. Bootleggers and rum runners funded by gangsters flooded the United States with alcohol. And many of the prosecutors felt the same. This week, we'll discuss the official story the rise of the bootlegger and rum runner, and how the government only used prohibition agents, fines, and jail time to discourage drinking. Next week, we'll explore our conspiracy theories about the prohibition era. That on two separate occasions, the government knowingly poisoned denatured industrial alcohol in an attempt to stop people from making moonshine. And by the time prohibition ended in 1933, Roughly 10,000 people died from drinking the tainted, government-regulated alcohol. Since the nation's founding, alcohol has been an integral part of American culture. After touring America, British naval captain Frederick Marriott famously wrote in 1839, I am sure the Americans can fix nothing without drink. They drink because it is hot. They drink because it is cold. They begin to drink in the early morning. They leave off late at night. Captain Marriott's words were as true in 1839 as they were 80 years later. But in 1919, the United States passed the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act, making the production, transportation, and sale of alcohol illegal in every state. As early as the 1820s, women and men had organized for temperance, the end of alcohol consumption in America. With an increase in immigration came the rise of the whiskey distillery and the saloon. More and more men found themselves becoming increasingly drunk and violent. The temperance movement aimed to put an end to their sins by eliminating the source, alcohol. The first victory for temperance came in 1851 with the passing of the Maine Law. This was the first U.S. government attempt to ban alcohol. Unfortunately, public outcry proved to be the bill's undoing. By the end of the decade, alcohol was once again legal in Maine. For decades, the temperance movement pressured the government to ban alcohol. But the government wasn't interested mainly because many congressmen and senators consumed alcohol themselves. But more importantly, one of the federal government's main sources of revenue was brewery and whiskey tariffs. It wasn't until the turn of the century that prohibition seemed attainable. 
Wayne Wheeler and his anti-saloon league were able to make alcohol a wedge issue. You were either for alcohol or you were not. There was no middle ground. By doing this, Wheeler and the Anti-Saloon League made sure to rally against any so-called wet candidate who wasn't for prohibition. And the results were astonishingly in the Anti-Saloon League's favor. Cities and states began passing prohibition laws, but enforcement was not working. If alcohol was banned in one city, people would just travel to the next. If it was illegal in one state, they would just cross state lines. It appeared that the only path to total prohibition was through a constitutional amendment, which would outlaw alcohol federally. And after the passing of the 16th Amendment in 1913, which made it legal for the federal government to tax a person's income, prohibition was in sight. With a new revenue stream, the government no longer needed to rely so heavily on alcohol sales taxes. Wayne Wheeler and his anti-saloon league pounced. After four years of hard lobbying, they finally achieved a centuries-long goal. In December 1917, a resolution banning alcohol overwhelmingly passed both House and Senate and was sent to the states for ratification. It took 13 months for the necessary 36 states to approve it. On January 16, 1919, The 18th Amendment, which prohibited any manufacturing, sales, and transportation of intoxicating liquors, became law. America was now a dry country. But interestingly enough, the 18th Amendment never actually distinguished what an intoxicating liquor was. Enter the Volstead Act, the bill that outlined how the government could enforce prohibition. Drafted by Wayne Wheeler, but introduced into Congress by Representative Andrew Volstead, the Volstead Act defined the rules of the new amendment. Anything, including food and candy, that was 0.5% alcohol or more was illegal. As such, wine, beer, and spirits were officially no more. However, alcohol for medicinal, sacramental, and industrial i.e. cosmetics, automotive, or home cleaning purposes, was still legal. Medicine became the only legal way for the average man to purchase whiskey. However, Volstead did grant Americans various rights. People were technically allowed to drink in the privacy of their own homes, the contradiction, of course, being that they couldn't buy it. Anyone caught buying alcohol could be fined up to $1,000 and sentenced to jail time. At midnight on January 17, 1920, Prohibition officially went into effect. The production, sale, and transportation of alcohol was over, or so the dries had hoped. Most Americans gave the experiment a try. It was now part of the Constitution, and so the average person was scared of the legal repercussions of buying liquor. They didn't want to wind up in jail or face a hefty penalty. But though the immediate effects of prohibition saw a steady drop in alcohol-related deaths and arrests, Americans still wanted a stiff drink. And when someone wants something they can't have, the desire only increases. It was actually easier to get alcohol now than it was before Prohibition. 
Many Americans had stockpiled alcohol for their own private consumption. Others, however, stockpiled to turn a profit. The era of the bootlegger and rum runner had begun. When Prohibition went into effect, Arnold Rothstein was a household name, thanks to his involvement with the 1919 World Series scandal. A prolific gambler, he was said to have been the one to bankroll members of the Chicago White Sox to throw the series for the Cincinnati Reds. Rothstein wasn't the kind of man to let a good opportunity pass him by. When Prohibition went into effect, he knew he could tap into the market. Smuggling quickly became his way into the bootlegging industry, and he knew the perfect country to get his alcohol from, Canada. Using the Great Lakes and the Hudson River, Rothstein was able to submerge New York City and the rest of the East Coast in alcohol. With the help of young, up-and-coming gangsters like Charles Luciano, Meyer Lansky, and Dutch Schultz, Rothstein was able to rake in millions without ever transporting illegal alcohol himself. At the height of his operation in 1925, it's believed he was worth the modern equivalent of more than $140 million. In addition to Canada, the Caribbean proved valuable bootlegging ground for the United States. Whether it was whiskey from Great Britain and Ireland or locally distilled rum from Nassau, the Southern Atlantic proved an excellent entry point for booze and aptly became known as Rum Row. And no man shipped more alcohol from Rum Row than William Bill McCoy. Though he abstained from alcohol himself, Bill McCoy saw that there was money to be made. But unlike Rothstein, who paid other people to smuggle in alcohol, McCoy had the means to traffic in the illegal substance himself. He had his own boat. In 1921, McCoy was offered $15,000 to load up his schooner, the Henry L. Marshall, with 500 cases of British liquor and sail from Nassau in the Bahamas to Savannah, Georgia. McCoy knew it was risky, but he couldn't turn down the money. It's unclear how long the trip took, but he did it without any trouble. And afterward, McCoy became hooked on smuggling alcohol. He began making deliveries up and down the East Coast. He purchased a much larger boat, the Arethusa, added a machine gun in case there was any trouble, and a high-powered motor so that he could make more runs throughout the year, as well as outrun the Coast Guard. He was considered trustworthy by his clients. He offered fair prices, and none of his alcohol was cheap knockoffs like some of his competitors. When you bought from Bill, you bought Johnny Walker or Dewar's. Some legends call this the origin of the phrase, the real McCoy. The advantage of rum running compared to trucking in alcohol from Canada was the open sea. The Coast Guard wasn't equipped to cover the entire coast. So, with the motors still running, McCoy would drop anchor three miles from land and buyers would sail up to the side of his boat to make their purchase. For two years, Bill McCoy was the king of the seas. But in November 1923, his luck caught up to him. 
While in the midst of making a shipment, McCoy's schooner was suddenly spotted by a Coast Guard vessel. Because they were miles from shore and thus out of U.S. jurisdiction, McCoy thought he could sail away. What he hadn't expected was that the Coast Guard would open fire. McCoy knew that he would be outgunned by their cannons and decided it was best to surrender. The Coast Guard discovered 200 cases of whiskey in the hull, though, according to McCoy, there were originally 4,200. McCoy pleaded guilty to smuggling and served nine months in jail. When he was released, he retired and moved to Florida. Once there, he and his brother opened a shipbuilding company. His rum-running days were over. Bill McCoy may have been one of the most famous rum-runners during this time, but only one man earned the title of King of the Bootleggers, George Remus. A Chicago lawyer originally from Berlin, Remus noticed within months of prohibition going into effect that he was representing Volstead Act violators. But what struck Remus was that the men he represented had more cash in their pockets than he did, and he was a lawyer. Remus was both impressed and dumbfounded, especially given the fact that many of them were, as he put it, without any brains at all. He decided that he would make a career change and enter the bootlegging business himself. Why should his clients reap all the benefits? And he was smart. He knew a loophole in the Falstead Act, medicinal alcohol. It was possible to get a prescription for whiskey, but it wasn't easy, and the Volstead Act restricted all prescriptions to just one pint every 10 days. Remus moved to Cincinnati, where organized crime held little sway, so there was an opening he could move in on. He purchased defunct distilleries and began distilling alcohol to sell to pharmacies for medicinal purposes. In essence, Remus created his own drug company, and as the profits began to roll in, he made sure to buy up distilleries in and around Ohio. Remus would sell the alcohol, but his trucks were often mysteriously robbed by gangsters, who in turn sold it themselves. Of course, Remus was actually selling the alcohol to the gangsters and managing to turn a tidy profit times two. He was charging the pharmacies and the gangsters for the same alcohol. In order to keep the feds off his scent, he'd cook the books. And when the time came, he made sure to pay off government officials to keep away from his operation. Though his total worth has been impossible to calculate, it is said that during the first quarter of 1921, Remus personally deposited the modern equivalent of over $33 million in the bank, untaxed. As Prohibition reached its fifth year, he was by far one of the richest men in the bootlegging game. Prohibition was supposed to put an end to America's drinking problem. Ironically, it made it worse. Alcohol was more popular and easier to get than when it was legal. By the late 1920s, There were over 30,000 speakeasies in the U.S., all of which were serving alcohol supplied by bootleggers. The government knew that it needed to regain control. In order for their experiment to work, it would need to enforce the Volstead Act. 
The problem, of course, was that was easier said than done. Coming up, Prohibition agents scour the country looking for bootleggers to bust. Now, back to the story. Not everyone in America was ready to give up their alcohol when Prohibition went into effect in January 1920. While many Americans did attempt to obey the law, the majority wanted their whiskey and beer fix. It became all too obvious that enforcing the Volstead Act was going to be more difficult than expected. Luckily, the government had a new plan. The Volstead Act didn't just define what an intoxicating liquor was, it also established the official means by which the law would be enforced. Under the control of the Treasury Department, the Bureau of Prohibition, which was established in 1920, became a separate branch of law enforcement and their sole purpose was to investigate and apprehend those violating the Volstead Act. But the agency appeared to be doomed from the start. When it was initially created, the budget allotted for only 1,500 agents to cover all 48 states, many of whom had little to no training in law enforcement, though that didn't prevent the government from giving them Tommy guns and badges. The agents were often referred to as prohees, and soon the prohees were making headlines alongside the same men they were attempting to apprehend. Two of the most famous prohees were the duo of Izzy and Moe, and in the early years of Prohibition, no one racked up more arrests than them. Isidore Izzy Einstein was an Austrian Jewish immigrant known for his affable personality and his way with language. He spoke Russian, German, Spanish, French, Italian, and Chinese. And he had an uncanny ability to perform various accents in English. Though he hadn't exactly abstained from alcohol prior to Prohibition, Izzy respected the law when it went into effect. When Izzy signed up to be a prohee in 1920, he was officially Prohibition Agent Number 1. Because of Izzy's vibrant personality, few bartenders or servers believed him when he outwardly told them he was a prohee. They'd laugh as they continued to pour the agent a shot. But when the handcuffs went on, the joke was no longer funny. But Izzy didn't just rely on accents and affability. He loved to use wild disguises to enter speakeasies. He'd dress up as women, football players, or a southern colonel, a Texas cattleman, a fisherman, a gravedigger, even a delegate from the Democratic National Convention. Anything and everything. And people fell for it. Not long into his career, Izzy recruited his friend Mo Smith, a cigar shop owner, to be his partner in doling out justice. Together, the pair went undercover in New York, Los Angeles, New Orleans, St. Louis, and Cleveland. The press loved their adventures. They reported on stories in which Izzy and Mo busted rabbis selling sacramental wine, rabbis with last names like Kelly, McGuire, and O'Malley or how the two busted a Hollywood speakeasy wearing medieval costumes from a film set. Their exploits were something ripped out of a dime novel. Despite their wild antics, the pair of prohees were successful. 
In five years, Izzy and Mo arrested over 4,900 violators and confiscated about 5 million bottles of booze. However, by November 1925, their superiors had grown tired of the theatrics. Izzy and Mo, along with over 30 other prohees, were fired because they did not measure up to the standards of efficiency. Given their success, the decision didn't seem fair, but the two weren't down on their luck for long. After their firing, they went into selling life insurance, and apparently, many of the people Izzy sold life insurance to were some of the bootleggers he busted years earlier. This was a lucrative business. Prohibition had become a dangerous time. The ban on alcohol actually led to an upswing in gangland violence and death. The concrete jungle turned into the Wild West. And that sometimes meant some members of law enforcement had to shoot first and ask questions later. Izzy and Moe may have preferred tactics like humor and disguise to take down Volstead Act violators, but other prohees chose violence. And no prohees liked violence more than William Harvey Thompson, also known as Kinky Thompson, for his tight, curly hair. It's unclear exactly how old Kinky was when he became an agent, but all signs point to young, likely his early 20s. The first mention of his name in the press was in 1925, when, during a raid, he shot a distiller in the stomach. Because not much is fully known about Thompson, there's a lot of mystery surrounding him. What we do know was that he wasn't known to follow Prohibition himself, despite being charged with enforcing it. It's been reported that he often got drunk, even if he wasn't undercover. And it has been said that he frequently associated with sex workers. But the reason why history remembers Kinky Thompson was his reputation for violence, and that the Bureau seemed okay with it. As long as he was busting bootleggers, who cared how it was done? Thompson's weapon of choice was a blackjack or a baton. He got so good at twirling his stick around and beating bootleggers with it that he was said to be something of a blackjack artist. One famous incident got Thompson in hot water with a local judge. As the story goes, Thompson got too rough during a raid at a backwoods distillery. According to Thompson's report, the owner of the distillery resisted arrest, so force was necessary. But during the trial, the jury saw Thompson's actions as a step too far. The judge at the trial called Thompson's supervisors at the bureau to warn them about his behavior. But Thompson's supervisors sided with Thompson. Their response? No bootlegger gets rough treatment unless he deserves it. Sometime later, Thompson and his partner raided a pool hall. When the owner denied that there was any alcohol on premises, Thompson proceeded to break a bottle over the owner's head, then take an axe to the pool tables, the bar, the cash registers, the paintings on the wall. From what we can gather, it is unclear if any alcohol was ever discovered. In 1927, Tacoma police were called about a drunken fight between a young couple in a parking lot. During the fight, the man involved was said to have reached in his pocket for something. Believing the man was going for a weapon, a police officer fired. 
The police quickly discovered that they had shot and killed Kinky Thompson. The Prohibition Bureau painted him as a martyr, despite a death that had nothing to do with his work. They sugarcoated his violent reputation as zeal. Thompson's legacy shows the violent lengths the government would go to to enforce prohibition. And if they would turn a blind eye to such violence, who can say what else they would have allowed? Violent or not, these tactics worked. It didn't seem like they needed to try anything else. Whether it was through the clever tricks of Izzy and Moe or the violence doled out by Kinky Thompson, these prohees managed to arrest thousands. And once they were arrested, it was up to the Department of Justice to prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. And no criminal prosecutor was more successful than U.S. Assistant Attorney General Mabel Walker Willebrand. In 1921, 32-year-old Mabel Willebrandt was given the difficult task of prosecuting bootleggers and rum runners, a job no one else in the Justice Department wanted. Like Izzy Einstein, Mabel Willebrandt wasn't a stranger to alcohol, but she understood her duties and took the law seriously. A progressive Republican, Willebrandt rose up the ranks as a public defender, Specifically, she made a name for herself representing sex workers in Los Angeles and forced their customers to shamefully appear in court themselves. It didn't take long for her name to be brought up as a potential assistant attorney general, and when it did, she received near-unanimous support among California judges. When Willebrand first became assistant attorney general in 1921, Her team consisted of only three members. But in a few short years, she had an army of 100, including 40 lawyers. During the majority of her term, she made sure any violator of the Volstead Act paid dearly. There would be no leniency, even if the bootlegger had political connections. But Willebrand's department also oversaw federal income tax litigation. This would prove to be a major tool in bringing down the nation's worst bootleggers. In 1927, one of the 40 cases she argued before the Supreme Court was that taxes should be taken out of illegal income. The Supreme Court agreed. So, thanks to Willebrand, the IRS was allowed to go after bootleggers for tax evasion or fraud. Famously, it's how they took down Al Capone. And another perfectly legal example of the government enforcing prohibition. From 1921 to 1929, no woman was more famous in America than Willebrand. She was dubbed the first lady of the law. By the time prohibition ended, Willebrand and her department notched 600,000 federal prosecutions. One of the earliest was none other than George Remus, the millionaire bootlegger hiding behind a pharmaceutical drug business. Izzy and Moe, Kinky Thompson, and Mabel Willebrand are just three examples of the government's official enforcement of the Volstead Act. While some of their methods were questionable, the fact remains they did their job. Unfortunately, they seem to be more of the exception than the rule. Many within law enforcement didn't care for the Volstead Act. Was it really worth going to such great lengths to prevent people from enjoying a glass of whiskey? 
Some people thought there was no point in putting themselves in danger for a law they didn't support. Why not turn a blind eye? Or better yet, take a few bribes. Almost from the get-go, corruption spread through all levels of law enforcement. And with it, the rise of organized crime. Coming up, the darker side of enforcing the Volstead Act. Now, back to the story. When Congress passed the Volstead Act in 1919, it helped create a new department to bring down those who broke the law, the Prohibition Bureau. Bootleggers and rum runners all had to hide their work from the agents, or prohees, men like Izzy Einstein and Mo Smith or Kinky Thompson. And if they got caught, it was U.S. Assistant District Attorney Mabel Willibrand and her team of prosecutors who made sure the criminals were locked away. But not all government officials believed in the law. Many thought prohibition was so ridiculous, enforcing it was a waste of time. This quickly bred corruption. The language within the 18th Amendment stipulates that the federal government would work with states to enforce the law. This immediately created a problem. The federal government assumed that the states would enforce prohibition themselves. But the states believed that since it was a federal law, it was up to the federal government to enforce. And the federal government did not want to spend that kind of money. During Prohibition, Republicans controlled Washington, both Congress and the White House, and didn't want to spend government funds on something like Prohibition. When the Bureau of Prohibition was established, its initial budget was $4.4 million. Today, that would be around $65 million. Salaries for Prohibition agents varied between $1,200 to $3,000 a year. So it was more profitable to receive kickbacks from bootleggers than actually bring them in. Just one year into Prohibition, more than 100 New York agents were fired for bribery. However, the government tried to sweep the problem under the rug. In 1925, the head of the bureau, Roy Haynes, claimed that because only 43 prohees were convicted for crimes between 1920 and 1925, it meant that the force was 99% honest. Except those numbers are completely wrong or fabricated. As journalist Edward Baer notes, between 1920 and 1930, some 11,926 agents out of a force of 17,816 were separated without prejudice because their criminal involvement couldn't be proved and another 1,587 were dismissed for cause, that is, for offenses that could be proved but might not warrant sentencing or that could involve costly, publicized trials. It seems like the government was aware of the corruption, but instead of taking action, simply tried to cover it up with misleading numbers. They may have known they were fighting a losing battle, but kept fighting anyway. In fact, as Bayer later notes, Roy Haynes, the head of the bureau, was notorious for laying blame on others. Haynes said, There are large communities where the entire machinery of government, municipal, county, and state is such that federal enforcement officials can get little, if any, cooperation, whatever. To some extent, Haynes wasn't wrong. 
corruption was worse at the local level. Many sheriffs and police officers turned a blind eye to small-town bootlegging operations or speakeasies. Since most of the bootleggers were heavily armed, it was often too dangerous. There was no value in fighting. One famous bootlegger actually started his career as a cop. Roy Olmsted was a lieutenant in the Seattle Police Department when Prohibition began. However, Olmsted began a small bootleg operation to make money on the side. After getting busted, Olmsted was fired from the police force and charged a fine. Afterward, Olmsted dove headfirst into alcohol and went on to become the most successful bootlegger in the Pacific Northwest. As the 1920s roared on, it had become obvious that prohibition wasn't working as intended. More people were drinking during prohibition than before. And corruption among those responsible to enforce the law made it impossible for anyone to have faith that the government was adequately equipped to tackle it. Adding to all of the government's problems was the unprecedented spike in violence. And much of that had to do with the rise of the gangster. When Prohibition started, bootleggers like Arnold Rothstein and George Remus figured out a way to peacefully stake out their territory with little violence. More often than not, they employed small-time street gangs to help them carry out their operations. But as Prohibition continued, and these operations brought in more money than they could have imagined, the small-time street gangs began to grow, and the alliances and peace agreements among rival gangs turned violent. Chicago famously had Al Capone. When Prohibition started, Capone worked for Johnny Torrio. When Torrio ran the Chicago outfit, there was relative peace with the rival Irish gang. But when an assassination attempt on Torrio in January 1925 forced him to retire, his young protege took over, and Chicago ran red with blood. The Chicago beer wars between Capone and his Irish and Polish rivals, Dean O'Banion, Bugs Moran, and Jaime Weiss, sent 400 gangsters to their graves, over 150 of those deaths were by the police. In the span of about five years, in the middle of the 20s, the streets of Chicago were a war zone, culminating in the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Everyone knew who was responsible for the massacre. But Capone was able to get away with it because he had the police on his payroll. It is said that for years, he paid them $500,000 a month to let him run his bootlegging operation without trouble. In New York, Charles Lucky Luciano quickly rose in the underground and proved that he was not only one of the most ruthless gangsters in town, but the smartest. He quickly aligned himself with such gangsters as Frank Costello and Vito Genovese and was close friends with Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel. With a bankroll from Arnold Rothstein, these men would go on to create a successful bootlegging operation in New York. And by the mid-1920s, Luciano had become a multi-millionaire. When Arnold Rothstein was murdered in 1928, Luciano went to work for Big Joe Masseria, whom he had worked for prior to his time with Rothstein. 
Masseria was of the old generation, the so-called Mustache Peets, and by the time Luciano rejoined with Masseria, tensions were heightening between some of the Mustache Peets. Known as the Castellamarese War, Masseria and rival gangster Salvatore Maranzano made New York into a war zone, and Luciano was right in the middle of it. At one point, however, Luciano, seeing that Masseria was losing, decided to switch sides, and in 1931, he arranged for Masseria's assassination. With Masseria dead, Maranzano was now the boss of all bosses. Five months later, Luciano heard whispers that Maranzano was going to kill him. Luciano had helped make Maranzano king, and in return, Maranzano was going to betray him. So, Luciano decided to get to Maranzano first. With Maranzano dead, Luciano became New York's number one bootlegger. But instead of crowning himself the king, he decided to completely reshape the American Mafia, an organization that remains to this day. A lot of people had to die for Luciano to become a boss, and it was all funded through bootlegged alcohol. Prohibition was supposed to end America's love of alcohol and the violence that came with it. And although there was a decline in homicide during Prohibition's first year, the 12 years after 1920 saw a dramatic spike. In 1921, the homicide rate jumped from around 6 per 100,000 to 8.1 per 100,000. And by the time Prohibition ended in 1933, the rate was just south of 10 per 100,000. Prisons also saw a rise in incarceration, too. By 1932, the federal prison population had increased 336% from before Prohibition was enacted. And there was a 561% increase in federal convictions. The common reason? violation of the Volstead Act. While the intentions may have been good, the reality is more people became criminals or died because of the Volstead Act. It seems the U.S. government couldn't police liquor without causing violence and death. Perhaps this was something that required drastic measures to gain control over, or perhaps death and violence was part of the plan there are some numbers that we haven't mentioned yet. Numbers the United States government didn't want released. Murder wasn't the only major cause of death during the 1920s. People were getting poisoned. Not everyone was able to afford the name brand alcohol that Bill McCoy and Arnold Rothstein smuggled into the United States. Many bootleggers had to rely on home-distilled alcohol to get their fix. A.K.A. Moonshine. When Prohibition went into effect, moonshine became the drink of choice for those without the connections to Johnny Walker or Canadian Club. And with the rise in moonshine consumption came the rise of alcohol poisoning. Unlike the so-called moonshine you see today in stores, moonshine in the 1920s was highly dangerous and made using whatever was available. If a moonshiner was lucky, he was able to buy corn mash from the grocery store 
or medicinal alcohol from the likes of George Remus. If a moonshiner was unlucky, he had to distill his liquor from wood or government-regulated industrial alcohol. And when a moonshiner made bottles of booze using industrial alcohol, death seemed to follow. Between 1926 and 1933, an estimated 10,000 people died from alcohol-related poisoning. It wasn't because they were drinking commercial alcohol like Dewar's or Canadian Club. It was because they were drinking moonshine and a popular late prohibition drink called Ginger Jake. 1926 is an interesting year to consider as a starting point because it was during the summer of 26 that rumors began circulating throughout New York City that government-regulated alcohol, one of the many sources for moonshine, was going to become more poisonous than before. Was it possible that the Bureau of Prohibition wasn't the only trick the government used to enforce prohibition? Did they know that moonshiners used industrial alcohol as an ingredient and wanted to stop it? even if it meant a death toll? And was this a coordinated effort at population control? The vast majority of those who died from alcohol poisoning didn't have the means to afford top-shelf alcohol. These men and women were only able to buy cheap, dangerous moonshine. Was the government aware of this and purposely targeting the poor? Next week, we'll explore two conspiracy theories which claim the U.S. government, on two separate occasions, purposely poisoned industrial alcohol. One theory claims they did it in 1926, and another in 1930. New Yorkers died in rapid succession at the end of 1926. Was it because of government-poisoned alcohol? Or was it something more? We'll find out next time. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back on Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now, Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 